The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 26th, 2017 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In trading today, I love saying that. I never get to say that, so I'll say it again. In trading today, shares of jewelry maker Pandora were down sharply from 640 to 600. This amid a very bad year. The Danish jewelry maker, I didn't even know that was true, but it is, so I'll say it. The Danish jewelry maker Pandora have been hammered all year, losing a quarter of their value. Meanwhile, the Pandora that you probably heard of, the music streaming service, they're doing actually worse. Shares of online radio company Pandora Media are set to crater when the market opens this morning. Blame a disappointing fourth quarter outlook, but perhaps also a bad business. Overall, Pandora Music is down over 40% on the year. Now go figure. You name your company after a myth where a woman opens a box and lets loose evil death, plague, and disease, and you say to yourself, yeah, I want my company associated with that. Only good things will happen. Let's drill a little deeper here, right? Let's say we're in the room. We got the branding guy on one side. We got the jewelry expert on the other side. And there's a little Q&A to try to figure out a name. All right, what do you do? We're a jewelry company. Okay. Uh, and how is jewelry usually given? Well, it's given in a little box. Right, right, right. And when your customers open the box, give me some words, some emotions that you'd like them to experience. Well, joy, excitement, love. Okay, well, let me piggyback on that. How about, I'm hearing joy, I'm hearing love, but how about we take those ideas, but instead tweak them a little and associate your name with a box containing misery and pestilence. Huh? Huh? All right, next in, the music streaming company. Okay, just lay the groundwork. Tell me how you would like your service to work. Well, the customer has a tablet or a computer or a phone, and they open this, essentially, this magic box. They don't really understand the box, but what comes out of it are songs. Songs of joy and excitement and love. And also, I should add that the entire process is intuitive and seamless. Okay, okay, I hear you there. I'm getting the box idea. Let me just slightly tweak that seamless joy and love flowing idea. Tweak it 10 degrees. And instead, how about we associate you and your box with an evil box of misery and complication that doesn't work as the user intended it? Okay, I'm open to that. But let me ask you this. Is the name you're proposing for my company also associated with a crap Danish jewelry maker? It is? Sign me up. And this has been tales of malfeasance and nonfeasance in the corporate branding industry. On the show today, baby, you can drive my car, just don't take off the burqa. That is my spiel. But first, he wrote the most read op-ed of 2016 advising the Democratic Party to move away from identity politics. Said the Democratic Party, seemingly in unison, uh, no. But they said it stronger than that. So Mark Lilla is here to discuss his book, The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics. Let's 
say there is a society, and not just a society, a democracy comprised of star belly sneeches and plain belly sneeches. And there's a lot of both, but there's about twice as many plain belly sneeches. And the star belly sneeches, they're, they're really into their stars. And why shouldn't they be? Also, they've been historically a little discriminated against or a lot discriminated against by the plain belly sneeches. Well, election time comes and the star belly sneeches all vote together. And some of the plain belly sneeches vote with them. You know, all the good plain belly sneeches who hang out with the star belly sneeches or understand their history. But election after election, it's just not enough. The star belly sneeches are always talking about their stars and how great their stars are and the five-pointed stars and the six-pointed stars and the different kind of stars. And the plain belly sneeches are just having none of it. Well, you, as a political scientist or just an observer using logic, might say, hey, star belly sneeches, you might want to say some stuff, you know, to pull some more plain belly sneeches into your camp at the polls. This essentially is the Dr. Seuss version of one of the most controversial books of the season, The Once and Future Liberal After Identity Politics by Mark Lilla. Sure, I've insulted everybody with my Dr. Seussian analogy, but hello, Mark. Thank you for coming in. Great to be here, Mike. It seems a matter of logic that if you keep losing elections and the things you keep talking about are these things, it almost doesn't matter how true and right and moral the content of what you keep talking about is. What really matters is it, it's a loser at the polls. People aren't seeing it that way. They aren't. And, you know, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that, you know, people on, on the left fell in love with movement politics in the 60s and 70s. Sure. And there was reason for that. It was because the political parties weren't addressing a lot of our social problems. And so you got social movements that kind of pushed the ball forward. But ever since 1980, the action in American politics has been party politics, that the way the Republican Party and conservatives and now the far right have gotten as far as they have is because they've paid attention to acquiring and keeping institutional power. People in movement politics today are, I think, politically geriatric in the sense that they're living in a past that isn't our present. So your story uh, you just gave presumes that people understand that winning elections matters. Right. And what I'm discovering as I go out and talk about the book is that that's not so evident. Mm -hmm. When, in fact, what we, what we know today is that institutional politics can always trump movement politics. It's so many of the gains that were made in the 60s through the, up until the 80s by these movements are being rolled back because the Republicans continue to grab institutional power. And for some reason, this is a difficult lesson for people on the left to understand. Isn't it useful to have an outer flank, a fringe, for a few reasons, to keep uh, everyone on point about what your goals are so that the centrists can kind of play off the fringe and say, listen, if you guys on the other side of the aisle won't negotiate with me, I've got all these guys giving me pressure. I mean, I look at the fringe tactics of uh, the Tea Party. I think that's been useful to moderate conservatives in a lot of ways. Oh, sure. But- it only works if you've got a center that has power, That's right. right? Yeah. So it's only if you have a Democrats in power that it makes sense to have these movements that get the center to move in a certain direction. I get that. But if you do not have Democrats in power, Republicans hold two-thirds of the state legislatures in this country, two-thirds of the governorships. They control 24 states outright. Democrats control seven of them. If Republicans win one or two more uh, state legislatures outright, they can call a constitutional convention. And if you don't think that's a threat to everything that's been gained for African Americans and gays and women in this country, you're dreaming. 
What is one thing that Hillary Clinton said on the campaign trail that she shouldn't have said because it was too much identity politics? Well, it was more a kind of tick she had that when she would go out on the stump, she would be sure to call out to various groups who yeah. who are in the Democratic coalition right now or are in Democratic Party consciousness right now, which means there are a lot of people she didn't mention. One out of every five Americans considers him or herself an evangelical. Mm-hmm. She never spoke about religious people, called out to religious people. 37% of the country lives in the South. She didn't call out to, to that, right? And so if you're going to mention people, you need to mention everyone. And she did not do that. Right. Everyone right? listening to this will say, uh, Trump did not do that at all either. Doesn't matter. It works for him. It doesn't work for us. I got you. The, I'm not giving moral gold stars to yeah. anybody. Well, tactical, I mean. It, it's a question of tactics. What you want to do is speak in a way so that people in all these groups recognize themselves in a principle and a project. So if you go out and say that the things that are motivating us, we believe things Republicans don't believe in. Two things. We believe in solidarity, that fellow citizens are not roadkill, that we can't take care of each other, and we believe in equal protection under the law. Now there are many cases in which those things apply. It applies to black Americans who are uh, pulled over for driving while black. It applies to gay couples who can't walk down the street holding hands. It applies to women who want an abortion. It applies to a guy uh, who can't get a, a job anymore in a former manufacturing town. It applies to the woman who's raising kids alone and needs health insurance. It applies to all these things. And what ties us together is that we are attached to this principle I want to fight for those things in all these theaters of the war. And if you have people focused on that message, they aren't focused so much on their differences. They have a common stake in fighting for those things. But that sort of thinking is totally absent on the Democratic side right now. So when North Carolina passes a bathroom bill, what are Democrats to do? Well, that's a that's a tactical problem because it, they set a trap. Here is a, 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 a local government that sets a kind of enlightened policy about something. Mm-hmm. The state legislature sees that they can put Democrats in a funny position about this sort of thing, and they lay the trap. And so we have a problem. Yeah. Right? You want to be clear in your head that while this is an important moral issue – that you're talking about one-third of 1% of the population. And so you have to learn how to use your resources, which are both financial and rhetorical, and to focus on the big-ticket items for elections. That doesn't mean that once you get elected, you don't do exactly what uh, the local government did, right, which is try to help these people and, and, and to find a solution. But you do not campaign on that. So my view is you don't fall into the trap. You change the subject. So you you allow the state legislature to get away with it. I mean, no, no, no. If you if you want to run for office mm-hmm. in that state, then you may want to fight it and make that an issue. But what happened is that not only did liberal politicians object to it, Apple did, and Google did, yeah. and all these companies did. And I suspect and worry that if they were quote unquote tactical, less willing to fight the good fight, there'd be a worse result. In North Carolina. Oh, no, but going and lobbying corporations is exactly the thing to do. Mm -hmm. And lobbying the NCAA, right? Yeah. That is a way to undercut 
what the state legislature did, and in fact, it worked. So, so then, right? I, but but this it, is what I don't but elections. But, it's about elections. Right, but no, okay. So you're saying no that we're only talking about a very very small percent of the population, and and an issue that doesn't have salience for a lot of voters that we're trying to get. Know that, okay? But practically, also do everything. What only behind the scenes to put pressure through groups to get North Carolina to change. Don't mention it on the campaign trail, but kind of do backdoor tactics to get to a place of justice. You bet. That's you, what you're saying. You bet. An election. But if, it, but, but if it, the politicians ele- weren't on the stump saying this is an outrage, would those corporations feel, oh, my God, our bottom line could get affected by this? Without po- If every Democratic politician was silent as a tactical measure, why would the NCA give a damn about the perception that people are going to boycott us if we play in North Carolina? Well, let politicians outside of North Carolina do that work for you is mm-hmm. what I'm saying. My goal would be to have a state legislature that is run by the Democratic Party. Now, there are things that are going to come up where you have to take a stand, right? And yes. so certainly you have to take a stand on what happened in Charlottesville. Okay, so right? maybe maybe trans Charlottesville, I want to talk about another state. Maybe the trans bathroom issue is one thing because it's a very small percent of the population. In Colorado, after the Boulder shooting, they passed gun reform and it killed the Democrats. The Democrats lost the the House of uh, the state legislature that they controlled. Uh, Hickenlooper is still governor, but Cory Gardner got elected to be senator. And so the question I have is, you know, you get into politics to win power. You win power to make certain changes. That's the sort of change that people get into politics and want to have power to do, to make more sensible gun laws. If this turns out to be the result, were they wrong to do that? Were they wrong to take a big swing, even if it engendered this backlash? I am sick to death of noble defeats. I am sick of that. Because every time we have a noble defeat, it gives hands to people and to a Republican Party that is getting crazier by the day. We must be aware of that. Right. Donald Trump is our president. And, and, and if that doesn't get you to focus and make some compromises and remain silent on certain things in the short term, I don't know what's going to wake you up. Well, what are the issues where you say, OK, this one we could throw overboard, but this is the one this is a hill to die on type issue. Look at Obamacare. There was such a backlash against Obamacare. But that's why you get into politics to to enact legislation like Obamacare. And you hope that eventually you might you might take some hits just like just like LBJ thought he lost the South for a generation for civil rights. And it turned out to be way longer than a generation. Right. But you have to take those hits, even if it's going to piss off some people and hurt you electorally. Well, for me, the question was, we're going to have national health care from now on in mm-hmm. one form or another. Right. And so the reason it was worth doing it is because it's going to work. Yeah, but it cost, cost votes, cost elections, cost seats, clearly it cost Democrat seats. Of course, but what you got in return was right. something else in terms of institutional power. What I'm talking about is not gaining any institutional power Yes, in order to genuflect before certain symbols. This book has upset a lot of liberals. I've read a lot of reviews, and the more nakedly political the reviewer is, especially the more to the left they are, I have found the more they have to criticize in the book, and I've listened to a lot of interviews with you. And so uh, I have a couple questions about this. One is, were you surprised? Did you think this would be a flashpoint as much as it has been? Well, after my New York Times article, this came out of yeah. a New York Times article uh, right after the election, which I wrote in two afternoons. And 
I, I thought it was pretty straightforward, a kind of cri de coeur. And, you know, it was the most read political essay in the New York Times of 2016. And so I got a sense of what the passions would be. What I tried to do in the book, though, is take the argument and put it in a larger historical context and also f- keep beating the drum that without institutional power, you can't protect any of the gains you make through social movements. Right. Right. And I understand why you're doing that. What you're doing there is exactly your prescription for America or prescription for liberals, which is articulate the broader philosophy. Right. And that is your broader philosophy. We need institutional gains. Even the people who are objecting to you could hear that and say, oh, yeah, that's right. Just like the analogy you're making, instead of speaking specifically with the transgender, say we need equal protection. I get what you're doing there. Right. And so I expected that once I put it in that context, yeah. that people would see it. But in fact, they're not. And part yeah. of it is that, you know, many of them are not reading the book. You know, they listen to an interview or they see an excerpt from the book that's been <laughs> – They uh, read a review that, that, that compares you to a David Duke acolyte. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But what about putting the words identity politics on the front page? Those are like a phrase, moral relativism or political correctness that you always accuse someone of, but no one ever says, oh, yeah, I engage in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I certainly wanted to – Push the envelope with that. But I'm talking about identity politics there as a tactic. Yeah. Look, there are many ways in which we talk about and need to talk about identity in this country in order to make sense of our history. And some of the crimes in our history, like slavery, we have to talk about identity. But when it comes to doing anything about any of those problems, yes, that requires another kind of thinking. And it's that leap that people are not only finding hard, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear it. Well, you write, you, you in the book predict that people don't want to hear it. You lay out why people don't want to hear it. You talk about an undergraduate who goes to a campus and she discovers that although she may come from a comfortable middle class background, her identity confers upon her the status of a victim and it inspires to j- her to join a campus group that engages in movement work. The line between self-analysis and political action is blurred. Her political interest will be real but circumscribed by the confines of her definition self-definition and issues that penetrate those confines now take on looming importance, her position becomes non-negotiable. Issues that don't touch on her identity are not even perceived. That's exactly what's going on with many of your critics. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I haven't thought about (laughs) that way. No, no, it's exactly that. And, you know, there in that part of the book, you know, what I'm arguing with uh, liberal educators is I'm trying to persuade them of something I think is the case is that they're actually depoliticizing their students, depoliticizing the sense of not making them effective political actors out there. Because it's depoliticizing them institutionally. Yeah. yeah. In terms of an in, the institution as the end goal to get anything done. Yeah. And also in terms of getting them engaged in wider issues outside of the ones that touch on the way they define themselves. I mean, you know, certainly when I was in college and a slightly earlier generation, 60s gen- generation, I mean, people – just the presence of Marxism forced you to think and talk about world history, capitalism, imperialism. You were talking about the great forces yeah. out there in the world. Many of the icons who are taught in a, a lot of uh, college courses, so uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Martin Luther King, Angela Davis, they were not burdened with an identity-based education. And they believed in institutional remedies. 
Yeah, and all so, the ones that you mentioned. Yeah, and so Elizabeth Cady Stanton, you know, she fought with her fa- father yeah. until he finally gave in, so she could study Greek. Yeah. Martin Luther King was studying German Protestant theologians of the nineteenth and twentieth century, and Ange- at the first two names of his name. Yeah, and, <laughs> exactly. And Angela Davis was studying the history of philosophy. She learned German. She went to East Germany. I mean, she had a wider horizon, right? You would think if you want to produce people like that, the, you know, the, the left's greatest generation, you would do exactly that. They don't. Mark Lilla is a professor at Columbia. He is the author of The Wants and Future Liberal After Identity Politics. Thank you, Mark. Thanks so much, Mike. Oh, Thank you. Damn, that felt good. Damn, <laughs> that felt good. I gotta smoke a cigarette now. And now the spiel. Saudi Arabia has announced that they will allow women to drive. Now think about this. Think about the challenges. Not only do they have to train and license and instruct half the population about the rules of the road. Think about the distance that the Saudi Arabian comedy scene has to cover in just this short amount of time. Well, lately with my car, I got a new problem. My wife just got her license to drive. And I'll tell you, since my wife is driving, she now has two men in her life. Me and a body and fender man. (laughs) Okay. Not a great joke from the Ed Sullivan show, but then he's Rodney. He brings it. I was out driving my wife the other day. She told me she was going to make a U-turn. I'll tell you the letter she made. (laughs) You'll never find any alphabet. Well-crafted. Is it wrong to laugh? Maybe it's wrong to laugh, but it feels so good. This Saudi plan to introduce female drivers to society, maybe it's really an end around, a double bank shot. Maybe it's designed to take the heat off the oppressive government. Instead of bloggers getting publicly lashed over pretty gentle criticisms of the kingdom, now they can vent about lady drivers. Oh, I tell you, and my doctor, Vinnie Boom Bots, you know, terrible, terrible doctor. Oh, the guy, he robs me blind. He's stealing with both hands. I want to report him, but I have surgery scheduled next week, and I don't want to be operated on by a guy with a claw. Okay, I'm sorry. That was not only a terrible Rodney Dangerfield impersonation, actually trending towards the snagglepuss. Sometimes when I do Rodney, that happens. But Rodney always has better jokes than that. To wit. Uh, I always wondered how my wife got her license the first time she took the test. I found out the inspector said he wouldn't go through that again. (laughs) You know, maybe Rodney's onto something there. Maybe this is Donald Trump's plan with the travel ban. Travel ban one struck down by the courts. Travel ban two struck down by the courts. Travel ban three, including Chad and all those Islamic terrorists from Venezuela. Also North Korea. The courts say, you know what? Get back to us. Eventually, maybe they're going to be like, fine, you win. Uh, I'll give it to you, Trump. No more North Koreans defecting to the United States. Here, by the way, are the stats on the number of North Koreans that have come to the U.S. It's 192 between 2002 and 2016, 15-year period. So, you know, it's about 15 a year. You can't keep track of 15 people in the United States. You got to make a broad decree affecting an entire country and tie the courts up 
over 15 North Koreans? That is beyond your capacity? Oh, yeah, that's right. You're the Trump administration. I actually buy that. But back to the Saudi decree allowing women to drive. It's part of an opening of their society, a diversification of their economy. Uh, Maybe this will also include legal reforms, experts say. But here is my question. Saudi Arabia, they're opening up. But how come the crown prince there, how come he doesn't have to play to his base? Why does our buffoonish leader get to insult most of America and divide the majority of his constituents and it gets dubbed playing to the base? But the actual autocrats in Saudi Arabia, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, good politics for them is what I would think good politics would be in a democracy actually improving the lives of most of their citizens, not in the U.S. Here, good politics is playing to the base. That is the justification for every blowhard statement that Trump makes. Every time he turns into a C-minus Mark Levin or some mid-market sports yacker, good afternoon, everybody, and the NFL owners should fire the players. Just fire them. Say something funny, Mikey. Okay, I will. Whenever Trump engages in, let us say, tomfoolery, there is the ready explanation that assigns a strategic element to it. You know, he is playing to his base. Let's define these terms. One's base, your most fervent supporters, playing to the base, seeking the support of your supporters. Tautology! Every time you hear someone explaining what Trump is doing as playing to his base, just say, or rather, sing to yourself, tautology. 46% of the electorate voted for Trump. That was his base. He gets inaugurated at that point. Gallup says he had a 45% approval rating. A little bit smaller, but that's his base. 100 days in, he's got about a 40% approval rating. His base. Now he's got a 37 or 38% approval rating. It's still his base. Is his appeal shrinking? Oh no. He's consolidating his base. Was the wicked witch melting or redefining her base? Let's now cut to 2024. A decrepit and disgraced former President Trump croaks out into the night. Ivanka, is that you, Ivanka? But Ivanka has turned her back on him, as have Jared, Steve Bannon, all the generals, Mnuchin, Mrs. Mnuchin, of course, that was a done deal. Just left are the following, Eric Don Jr., Chris Christie, who can't quit the Donald, and David Duke, who Trump says he's still never heard of. He calls over Eric and says, I never loved you as much as Don Jr. He calls over Christie, tells him he's an embarrassment. Those guys storm out. Now, I ask you. Did he just antagonize two of the only four people who might possibly change his colostomy bag one day? No, he was just playing to his base. Because for all his talk of patriotism, Donald Trump clearly sees this country as something less than an ideal, as something less than the shining city on the hill. He sees it as a harsh place, as a land to be squabbled over, as part battleground and part killing field. In short, and what I'm saying here before you today is that Donald Trump looks at the United States of America and what he sees is nunzios. You know, nunzios. What a place that was, nunzios. I mean, the star of the show was a rabies-infected dog act. (laughs) Oh, that was a tough place, nunzios, tough. As you entered this place, you went down two steps, physically and socially. (laughs) 
That's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson's having troubles. Nothing but troubles with her car. Every Sunday, she takes her family out for a push. Just producer Dan Schrader comes from a stupid family. A stupid family. His father worked in a bank. They caught him stealing pens. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. He's a bad lover. A very bad, just the worst. He once caught a peeping Tom booing him. The gist, you know, my psychiatrist told me I was crazy, and I told him, I want a second opinion. And he said, you have a syndrome characterized by clinically significant disturbance in an individual's cognition, emotional regulation, or behavior that reflects a dysfunction in the psychological, biological, or developmental processes underlying mental function. I said, really? He said, no, I'm kidding. You're ugly, too. Oomperu, dapperu, dooperu, and thanks for listening.